to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Matte. How you doing, Aaron? I'm good, Katie. How was your week? It was good. Thanks for asking. I actually, on Monday, went to a very fun block party celebrating the freedom of Stephen Donziger. Friend of show. He's been on both this show uh, with Matt Taibbi, so before your time. Uh, and he's been on the Katie Halper show. And he is, for people who don't know, he's an environmental and human rights lawyer who was persecuted and prosecuted by Chevron. Seriously, he was locked up. He was under house arrest. And then he was sent to prison, federal prison. Uh, and then he was allowed to serve the rest of his sentence out under house arrest again. And when he was under house arrest, he had like an ankle monitor and everything. And he had to check in with the halfway house. And his crime was successfully suing Chevron for poisoning the people of Ecuador. That's really what, I mean, obviously it was a technicality that they got him on, not that. It was actually not turning over his uh, laptop and cell phone, which is so obviously something that a lawyer should have the right not to do. And because he appealed that, uh, that order, he was in contempt, criminal contempt, uh, it's an unprecedented case in many ways uh, because it really was an overt corporate prosecution because the Southern District of New York declined to prosecute this case because it was so ridiculous. So this judge, Judge Lewis Kaplan, a Clinton appointee, handed the case over to a, a corporate uh, law firm, which had represented Chevron, had represented Chevron. They took over, prosecuted Donziger, and Louis Kaplan also, uh, that same judge, handpicked the judge to oversee the contempt trial, the contempt case. And that judge is Loretta Preska, who is a member of the Federalist Society, major right-wing uh, legal society, which also gets money from Chevron. And it was so corrupt, when she sentenced him to the maximum six-month sentence, she said that only the proverbial two-by-four between the eyes would instill in Do Mr. Donziger respect for the law. He lost his law license. He's been disbarred. The people of uh, Ecuador, on whose behalf he sued Chevron, he won them. He and other lawyers, including Ecuadorian lawyers, won a $9.5 billion settlement. And they haven't paid a cent because they've basically used Stephen's case to try to, to block payment. And uh, the people there are still, they got cancer. They had birth defects increased. And they're still being poisoned now. They still haven't cleaned it up. It's like an, an insane insane story. So the good news is he's free. The bad news is that they still haven't paid the people of Ecuador what they owe them. It was a fun block party. Will Menneker was there from Chapa Trap House. Christian Smalls was there, which was really exciting. The, you know, the Amazon uh, labor leader. Uh, Susan Sarandon was there. Uh, Donziger's lawyers were there. Ron Kuby and um, Marty Garbus. Marty Garbus represented uh, Nelson Mandela, Cesar Chavez, Lenny Bruce. It was great. It was really fun. I'm so happy for Steven. And, uh, but we got to keep fighting. We got to keep fighting. Well, listen, uh, the story of Steven Donziger is unbelievable. And you've done a great job covering it at the Katie Helper show. And uh, I cannot believe that, like, the idea that a judge can say, you know what? Yeah, the courts did want to take this, but let's keep it rocking. Let's, and let's farm it out to a, a private firm that is tied to the company that Steve Donzinger defeated. Right, it's right. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. By the way, Aaron, it looks like you have horns on your head. Really? Your head. Yeah, because the plants. When art uh, reveals the truth about life. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. That's People better. People really did like your call center headphones. Oh, they love that. I know. I got so a lot maybe of. Maybe you got... can get one with devil's ears. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah, for people who missed it, I I wore a headset. Last week's episode, I got a lot of, I got a lot, I got a lot of bullying. I've never been internet bullied as much as I have since I joined this show, Katie. So, yeah. thanks for that. That's because <laughs> the people love you. They know you're strong. Uh, yes, they do. Yeah. They do. And and your week was it good? My week was interesting. I had this one thing happen where Facebook suspended people for sharing an article that I recently wrote. It's about Syria. It was published in Real Clear Investigations, and the article just points out the fact that the current team of top officials in the Biden White House. Under Obama, they presided over a policy of arming an insurgency that was dominated by Al-Qaeda and basically lying to the public and claiming that they were arming moderate rebels when they knew all along that the insurgency was dominated by Al-Qaeda and its allies. And I sort of go through the history of that and how it helped create, among other things, 
what Brett McGurk, who is now a senior official under Biden, calls Al-Qaeda's largest safe haven since 9-11. And that's the province of Idlib, which the Al-Qaeda franchise in Syria now controls. And that was captured by Al-Qaeda and its allies with U.S. support. So I'm putting out just what a major scandal this is and how there are parallels to what Biden is doing right now in Ukraine, flooding it with weapons, having no idea where these weapons will end up, overlooking concerns about these weapons getting in the hands of extremists. In Syria, it was Al-Qaeda and even ISIS getting U.S. weapons. And in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion and other far-right extremists and Nazis will be getting U.S., are getting U.S. weapons too. And of course, doing this in a proxy war in which the U.S. and Russia are on opposite sides of the same battlefield, which is very dangerous. Anyway, so I wrote this article and when people have been trying to share the Substack version at matthay.substack.com, they've been getting suspended <laughs> from Facebook. And it's happened to a bunch of people, and I have no idea what to do about it except just complain publicly. But it's crazy. So they can send it. They can. So you publish this on on your Substack, and also through Real Clear Politics. At, at Real Clear, yeah. And the Real Clear okay. link, the Real Clear link, people are not getting suspended for, but the Substack link, they are. What if Real Clear is behind it, and this is an attempt to make sure people give them the traffic and not your <laughs> Substack? That would be a uh, hey. Then I would say respect. Then respect for taking out the competition. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's taking it to a new level. But that's really awful. It's too bad. Suspended? You know, for... How long are the suspensions lasting? Some people, uh, a few people said thirty days. A few people said it was shorter. So let me just apologize to anyone who was suspended from Facebook for my sake. I'm sorry for that. And, uh, you know, I will write Facebook to complain. But aside from that, I just, you know, th these are our masters. These are our tech overlords. Not Maybe so much you can we write can a do. piece for real clear. In fact, if they're not down, if they say no, you know what that's going to suggest. That means they're, that, that means it was them. <laughs> they're in. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we can, we'll follow it up and we'll yeah. expose We'll expose whoever whoever is behind this. We'll expose them. I was gonna say you should thank people and like write a public post thanking people with their names, but that's actually not good because then they'll probably be targeted. Yeah, who knows what other suspensions await them? That's awful. Yeah, that is so messed up. It really is messed up, and that obviously has a chilling effect. It absolutely does. It absolutely does, and uh, it's especially difficult when you know, even though the U.S. is so heavily involved in Syria, the U.S. spent billions of dollars there it's one of the most expensive covert programs in the cia's history and now there are hundreds of u.s troops there hundreds still basically stealing syria's oil that's what as trump said that they're there for right but yet we're just you know a the u.s media doesn't really talk about syria and b when you try to talk about it in places like facebook people get suspended for sharing articles about it so and you're also smeared if you talk about it oh yes well, of course yeah, yeah that goes without saying that's really awful. Wow. I can't believe they just get away with that. Do they even say why? Do they have a reason? Community guidelines. That's so disgusting. Yeah. Maybe real clear can complain because it's And perhaps their reasoning is that like, you know, the the title of the article is Al Qaeda is on our side, right? That's what it's called. And oh. so perhaps that triggered some kind of thing where it's it means you're promoting Al Qaeda. But the thing is that title is not that those aren't my words. I'm quoting Jake Sullivan, who was right. the current national security advisor to Joe Biden. And in February, 2012, he wrote an email to Hillary Clinton saying, Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And that's the point of the article. So perhaps that triggered the algorithm that it's promoting but Al Qaeda. But really, my article is pointing out that it was the it was the Obama Biden camp that was promoting Al Qaeda. Right. Is the real clear article had the same title? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, because that would explain it. Maybe if if theirs didn't, maybe I wonder what it is. I wonder if you just have a certain like if you're verified or something. It takes it, it like the threshold is higher yeah. for them to to punish you for sharing an article. Anyway, the good news is that Elon Musk is going to make it all better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, that's Twitter. My bet. Yeah, but it's the whole vibe. Yeah, it'll the be, whole vibe. I'll be changing the vibe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mark Zuckerberg, for that. Thanks, Zuck. Well, let's start with the four basic food groups, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. So this is a uh, talk about ethics. This is a uh, Useful Idiots uh, host on Useful Idiots host uh, uh, presentation. Uh, Matt Taibbi, founder, co-founder of Useful Idiots. Uh, you know, you may know him from other things such as his uh, award-winning books and, and journalism. 
But at TK News, he has, and of course, he's writing a book right now, which is a mixed blessing. We miss him every day, but we're also so blessed by the presence of Aaron Mate. So uh, he has a, a piece up at his Substack, The Gentleman's Agreement When TV News Won't Identify Defense Lobbyists. And he writes a piece about this, and then he also embeds uh, a video by Matt Orfalea, which I think we could just watch that video. So can the U.S. deliver the heavy weapons? The U.S. has contributed, I think, nearly $2 billion in aid, militarily, economic, uh, since this war began. And if you're just can the U.S. be doing more? This is the most Leon important Panetta. thing right Let's now is the weapons, weapons systems, the weapons they need. They need to have stingers and the javelins, but they also need anti-aircraft uh, uh, capabilities. They need anti-missile capabilities. We have to bring these weapons uh, to get the weapons to the Ukrainians, as many weapons as necessary to provide weapons, so sophisticated weapons, whatever possible weapons can be provided. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He works at a firm whose clients include Raytheon, the second largest military contractors in the world. We should arm the Ukrainians. Providing weapons, providing supplies, defenses to arm with weapons, with ammunition. We have to simply do more. To do something more. To do more by way of supplying weapons, arms. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He's on the board of directors at Lockheed Martin, the largest military contractor in the world. Arm the Ukrainians. Anti-tank. Get them armed drones. We need to make sure that we get them air defense systems. And ammunition. Lots of ammunition. Whatever we can get them, we're going to have to continue to arm the Ukrainians. Undisclosed conflict of interest. She's the chair of the BAE Systems Board of Directors. By the way, I've been always for us to update and modernize our our nuclear arsenal. That's important. We need to continue to flow weapons. Flow the weapons. They need missiles. Anything they ask for. We need to get the weapons. Weapons systems. Heavy weapons. Weapons. We ought to be giving them anti-ship missiles. Missiles. Combat chads. Good fighter. Ammo. Howitzers. Plenty of firepower. Everything. Tanks. 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 The javelin. Get those weapons. Weapons systems power those weapons missiles weapons undisclosed conflict of interest he's an advisory board member of a firm with raytheon on its client list so you get the point many 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 conflicts of interest um no and with people not listed uh their conflicts of interest not at all listed not even referred to there's so many it's unbelievable yeah it's unbelievable what a great video from uh the two Matt, Matt Taibbi and Matt Arfelia. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, what's it say? I, you know, it's just so, it's so shameless and yet it's so normalized. It's never, ever acknowledged in these media shows. It should be the most basic thing to say, but it's never, ever acknowledged right. that the people advocating policies to send more weapons to Ukraine stand to profit from them. I mean, that's just the most basic thing to acknowledge, but because it, because war is so normalized and everyone supports the underlying policy, it doesn't 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 occur to them that to that that's a conflict of interest because it's just like breathing air that you, it'd be natural to advocate setting off weapons to foreign countries and profiting from them. So it's not even worth acknowledging. Right. It's just the default. Yeah. It's the default. Uh, and I should say that most of those people were Democrats, but um, or affiliated with the Democratic Party. But Kelly Ayotte is a Republican. She's a former New Hampshire senator. So this also gives I'm 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 paying into your bucket, too, because this week you have Republican suck. So that that gives you a little bit of Republican suck also. Well, it's always good to have crossover. Yeah. Cross pollination. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of Republican suck, I have this week Greg Abbott, who is the Republican governor of Texas, and he came up with a pretty interesting scheme to try to stick it to Joe Biden when it comes to the border and uh, the surge in refugees and migrants coming from across the southern border. And basically his plan was, well, he announced it on Sean Hannity's show on Fox. So let's watch that first and then we'll see how it's going. Will you send every illegal immigrant that you find in the state of Texas to Washington, D.C.? We're, we're going to load them up and send them to Washington, D.C., if we run out of room there, Delaware looks like a great location. So that's Greg Abbott. He's the governor of Texas. And he, he's come up with this plan basically where he's going to pay for buses to take migrants from Texas to Washington, D.C. And this has actually begun. And the results are really interesting. Most of the migrants who have been interviewed about this are expressing gratitude because they're saying that basically this is that these buses are bringing them closer to their 
desired destinations, especially Miami. So we have another clip of Newsmax, which is a right-wing channel, which interviewed some migrants arriving at Washington, D.C.'s Union Station. Said that they know that they are a prop in all of this, but they wanted to come anyway because this allows them to get a ticket to where they're going. Some of these migrants told me that they want to go on to Miami. They said they are very excited to be here. They feel welcomed. Uh, we're here in the food court at Union Station where a lot of them have been getting something to eat because this was a 34 hour bus ride, uh, which they did tell me that they received food and, and drinks, um, but it's been a very long journey. And now they're going to be departing to other destinations. Catholic Charities has been on hand to assist them with their efforts. But I want to sit down with this group of migrants a little bit here to talk about their journey. Um, uh, hola, ¿cómo estás? Bien, bien, gracias bien. a Dios. Uh, ¿Cómo se llama? José Alejandro. Alejandro. Alejandro, uh, ¿cuántos años tienes? José. How old are you? 26. 26. 26. Okay. 26 years old. Uh, and you're 40? Sí. And... 25. 25. Uh, siente? How do you feel? Muy bien, gracias a Dios. Gracias a Dios que llegamos. Uh, destination finalmente? Miami. Miami. So basically, Greg Abbott is Thanks, Greg. giving these people a, a ride to where they want to go anywhere in trying to stick it to, uh, try to stick it to Biden, which I just thought was pretty funny. Yeah. That's a Republicans are great. Republicans are uh, enable are facilitating this process. <laughs> they should win an award <laughs> from some, you know, or, uh, organization d dedicated to human rights of the undocumented. Yeah, yeah. No. But look, I mean, part of the reason for this is it's approaching election time. Abbott's up for election. The midterms are coming up, and and Republicans they. They don't challenge Democrats on any of the areas where Democrats actually really suck. So, for example, especially in my opinion, on presiding over a proxy war, pausing and presiding over a proxy war in Ukraine. But Republicans support that proxy war. So they have to find other issues that they can try to look tough on. And picking on refugees and migrants is always a tough choice for them. Yeah, because they suck on all the things that, that Democrats suck on, but even more, usually, although not more with Ukraine. But more Not more with Ukraine. It's pretty yes. So that's my Republican suck. They really do. Well, let's go. Let's move on to. Isn't that weird, Aaron? Have you you've been in like annoying phone calls or Zooms or uh, Zoom calls or meetings, right? And you just really would love to get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. We've all been there. Sure. So uh, Wilson, can you click on the on the link to um, the soundtheexcuse.com? Stuck on a stressful video call. Then try sounding one of our excuses below and take a moment to escape. All right. Actually, you know what we should so so you can play a sound effect that makes it seem like there's an emergency that you need to tend to. So actually, Aaron, close your eyes because I want to pick a I want to pick some of these and I want to okay. see if you know which one it is. So Wilson, let's play um, top. Uh, let's see, uh, second row all the way to the left. What do you think that is, Aaron? I'm supposed to be able to tell what that is based on that noise. Well, I mean, I would then follow up by saying something. This one's a weird one. I don't know if I would ever use this one. But that one is a a dodgy tummy. Dodgy That's tummy. A dodgy tummy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so play that again. Let's say, here, keep talking to me, Aaron. Talk to me like we're talking on a Zoom chat. Okay, go. Okay. Hey, how's it going? Uh, anyway, so ah, the first quarter numbers sorry are Sorry about that. I just have a... Sorry, that's my dodgy tummy. I'm going to have to call you back. That's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good. Sorry okay, I that. see it. I yeah. hear a dodgy tummy. hear it, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Which other one should we do, Wilson? It's up to you. Some of these make sense. Like, you spilled tea on your computer, there's a food delivery, but when is there going to be a stampede coming? Oh, yeah, let's play that one. I'd love to finish this meeting, but there's a stampede of... Uh, of cows coming so we're gonna oh my god well I, I was gonna share with you the quarterly feedback on the uh wilson file but yeah. uh i guess yeah, you can't because you, you have a stampede coming okay well i guess yeah. you can go all right let's do one more close your eyes aaron so how are those quarterly reports looking aaron oh uh, well sorry someone's someone's knocking on my door i can't answer the i can't answer that really important question yeah 
That's good. Oh, yeah. Sounds like someone's stuck in the loo. Listen, they're British. <laughs> this so, is really smart. This is really smart, right? So I'm on board. Is, and then if you scroll down all the way, Wilson, uh, if you're wondering what this is from, if it feels a little gimmicky, it feels a little bit less like some uh, naturally altruistic tool for helping people get out of meetings. No one should have to make an excuse to look after their mental health. If you would like to help, if you would like help or advice on how to manage your mental health whilst working from home, visit thebookofman.com. That was a cool idea to give yeah. people an out for their Zoom calls. Yeah, and we'll have to link to it so that people can use it. All right. So All right. for isn't that terrible? We have a story from High Times. Oh my gosh. And the headline is bride caterer accused of lacing wedding food with weed. I don't know. Could, could be great, depending on how it goes. Alanis Morissette never sang about weed on a wedding day. But for one Florida bride and caterer, there was some good advice that they just didn't take. Here's the story via CNN and other media reports. 42-year-old bride, Danya Shea Svoboda, and 31-year-old caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, have been charged with culpable negligence, delivery of marijuana, and violating Florida's Anti-Tampering Act, stemming from a February wedding in Longwood, Florida, that turned into a serious buzzkill. Svoboda and Bryant have been arrested and accused of lacing wedding food, including lasagna, with marijuana and causing several guests to become sick. The affidavit says the bride agreed to and allowed Jocelyn Montrenice Bryant to lace the food she served with cannabis unbeknownst to the attendees, many of whom became very ill and required medical attention. Deputies arrived at a community clubhouse in Longwood that night to find several guests receiving medical attention. For some, the evening was anything but enchanting. CNN reported that one woman who attended the wedding told an investigator that while she was at the hospital, she felt paranoid and believed her husband wasn't telling her the truth about other family members and that her son-in-law had died and no one was telling her. She also said she became loud and unruly in the emergency room and had to be given medication to calm down. Wow. This is truly terrible in my opinion. This is truly terrible. I would, uh, I've had I've had paranoid experiences off of weed before and it was not pleasant, but at least I knew that, you know, I, I had consumed weed. So I was able to have some perspective on it. But in this case, these poor people didn't know. They just think they're eating wedding cake. I mean, what if you're sober? Like, what if you've had a drug problem before? Yeah. You probably, they probably really were hungry. Probably got really bad munchies. Well, and the problem with there is if you're hungry, if you're hungry, then you go back and you eat more wedding food right. and you get higher. Right. You know, so it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. That's just very bad PR also for the cannabis movement. Terrible. It's going to set mean, them back. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's going to set them back. You never violate people's consent. No, definitely not. No. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I mean, I'm sure maybe someone had a good time, but overall, I think that counts as terrible. So we have a great guest. I'm so excited to be bringing him on. Um, Michael Hudson is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, ISLIT, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is the author of several books, including Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. He is an economic advisor to governments worldwide. We don't have time to read his entire biography because he's so prolific, but here's something I have to include, which is that in 1984, Hudson joined Harvard's archaeology faculty at the Peabody Museum as a research fellow in Babylonian economics. A decade later, he was a founding member of the International Scholars Conference on Ancient Near Eastern Economies, an international group of Assyriologists and archaeologists who analyzed the economic origins of civilization. Isn't that cool? Really cool. Yeah. Uh, and you can find out more about Professor Hudson and follow his work at michael-hudson.com. All right, let's hear from Michael Hudson. Professor Michael Hudson, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. We wanted to start off by asking you just if you could provide an overview of what the economics driving this conflict are. And by conflict, I mean the conflict between Russia and right. Ukraine and, of course, right. the rest of the world, or really the conflict between Russia and the U.S. and the economic fallout. Well, it depends what side you're looking at. Uh, from the Russian side, I don't think uh, the economic uh, 
uh, factors were prim primary. They were threatened by uh, NATO's uh, expansion uh, and really a plan to attack the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. So I think Russia's calculations were simply uh, military. The West's calculations were quite different. Uh, and if you look at what the results of the conflict are, you have to assume that uh, everybody was talking about them. The results were known. They're very clear. The results are a very large increase in fuel prices, oil and energy prices, uh, a very large increase in agricultural prices with declining supplies of food. Uh, this will leave uh, most of Africa and Latin America, third world countries, the global south, uh, unable to pay their foreign debts, uh, which uh, is going to result either in a massive debt default or it will result in a debt repudiation. Countries are going to have to choose. Are they going to have to operate their homes without energy, their factories without energy? And uh, energy consumption per capita is directly connected to GDP for the last 150 years. Every, uh, every uh, chart shows energy use and uh, uh, GDP uh, and personal income go up together. So what are countries going to do when they can't afford uh, to pay the higher prices for energy? Well, uh, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, who was the Federal Reserve head and the Secretary of the Treasury, says, well, what we're going to do is uh, uh, use the International Monetary Fund to preserve America's unipolar hegemony. I think she used almost those words. We have to keep American control of the world and we're going to do it through the IMF. And uh, that means in practice, using the IMF to create special drawing rights, which will be sort of like free money, uh, the bulk of which will go to the United States to support its military spending abroad for all of this uh, huge uh, uh, military uh, uh, escalation. And it will uh, enable the IMF to go to countries and say, we will help you uh, pay your debts uh, and not be foreclosed on and get energy. But it's conditional, unusual conditions. You have to make, you have to lower your wages. You have to uh, pass anti-labor legislation. You have to uh, agree to begin selling off your public domain and privatize. Uh, the I am, uh, the uh, energy and food crisis caused by the war, uh, uh, the NATO war against Russia is going to be used as a lever, not only to push privatization largely under control of US uh, investors and banks and financiers, uh, but it's also going to lock countries into uh, the U.S. orbit all the more, uh, both the global south and especially Europe. Uh, one casualty is obviously going to be Europe and the euro. The euro has been uh, plunging uh, in value day after day after day as people realize that it, it doesn't, it's uh, lost its export markets in uh, Russia and much of uh, uh, Asia, and now at home too, because exports require energy uh, to be made. Uh, it, it's cost of imports are going up, especially uh, of energy. Uh, it's agreed to, uh, to, to use, uh, I think now it's three uh, billion dollars to build uh, new port facilities to buy US natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas at uh, three, or three to seven times the price it's paying now, which will make it almost impossible for German firms to produce fertilizer uh, to grow crops in, in Germany. Uh, uh, the the euro's plunging. The uh, largest plunge of all has been the Japanese yen because Japan imports all of its energy and most of its food and that's keeping its interest rates uh, very low uh, in order to support the financial sector. And so the Japanese economy is being uh, sacrificed and squeezed. And I think this is, uh, you can't say, gee, this is an accident. This is part of the plan, because now the United States can say, you know, of course, we don't want your yen to go down so much that your consumers have to pay more. We will, of course, give you SDRs, special drawing rights, and we'll give you American aid. But we do want you to uh, rewrite your constitution so that you can have atomic weapons on your uh, on your, so your uh, soil so that uh, we can fight against China to the last Japanese, just like we're doing in Ukraine. Let us do it for you. And of course, the Japanese love that idea. 
the government loves that idea. Uh, they love sacrificing the population, which is what they've been doing ever since the Plaza Accord and the Louvre Accords of the 1980s that uh, basically uh, direct, uh, wrecked the uh, Japanese industrial economy from a huge upswing to uh, just mass, uh, uh, mass shrinkage. So those are the, the economic effects uh, of the war. And uh, it's uh, in the newspaper, you'd think the war is all about Ukrainians and, um, and NATO fighting Russians. And it's really a war by the United States to use uh, the you, the uh, NATO-Russia conflict is the means of uh, locking in control over uh, its allies and uh, the whole Western world, and in Janet Yellen's world, words, reestablishing American unipolar power. And do you think that, I mean, it's, assuming that this is the U.S. strategy, taking your argument at face value, do you think that this strategy will succeed? <laughs> Ultimately, it'll be self-defeating, and almost every uh, U.S. politician uh, and military per, uh, speech uh, has the phrase, gee, we don't want America to shoot itself in the foot. Uh, and uh, obviously, they're all worried about it. It's a huge gamble. Uh, apparently, the military was not even consulted in the uh, uh, sanctions that were put against Russian, uh, Russian energy. And the military uh, wasn't consulted even on uh, much of the, uh, uh, the plans by the State Department and the national security, uh, the neocons uh, the, uh, that are, are running the uh, NATO war. Uh, and so obviously there's a lot of doubts within the military, but they don't speak up. That's not what they do. Uh, the, it's amazing that in Europe, the only opposition to this is coming from the right wing, people like Marine Le Pen, uh, not from uh, the left wing. So the left wing in Europe, the social, dem I shouldn't say the left, I should say uh, what is now the right wing, the social democratic parties, the <laughs> labor party. Uh, uh, those are the parties that are uh, thoroughly be uh, behind NATO. And there doesn't seem to be a political alternative in these countries, except the uh, uh, so, uh, going along with the uh, policy that's going to squeeze their balance of payments and lock them into dependency in the United States. Uh, so what seems to be happening if, if there's no fight back on the part of uh, Europe? Uh, obviously, if you look at the uh, United Nations vote on uh, uh, whether to uh, come out with a policy against Russia, many countries either abstained or voted against it. So uh, what, what a re the, the big economic result is structural. It means there's like an iron curtain between uh, the, the, West, the white Western world, Europe and North America and the Five Eyes, uh, and uh, Eurasia, uh, China, uh, India, and uh, Russia. Uh, and, that may, and their surrounding territories. And if you have uh, China, India, and Russia, uh, or what McKender called uh, Eurasia, the, uh, the, the world uh, core, then are you going to have the rest of Asia coming along? The question is going to be what happens with uh, Taiwan, Japan, uh, and North Korea. They're pretty much uh, up for grabs. Uh, and uh, uh, yet, uh, two days ago, uh, the NATO leader, uh, uh, Stoltenberg, said that uh, NATO has to have an, a presence in the South China Sea, that NATO has to defend Europe in, in the Pacific. Uh, uh, in China. So uh, you can see the conflict uh, that's coming there. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you also had one of the NATO peoples, uh, a European uh, 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 politicians, uh, the, the head negotiator saying, this war, this cannot be settled economically. It cannot be settled by treaty. It can only be settled militarily. Well, so then you're back to how does mil the military going to affect uh, the economy? Well, Russia can not afford to lose uh, because if it loses, they're going to be the NATO is going to put atomic weapons right in Ukraine, right next to its border, as it uh, wants to do in uh, uh, in Latvia and Estonia. Uh, and the U.S. apparently is taking a position: we can't lose because if we lose, Biden won't be reelected, uh, and uh, Biden needs uh, apparently is now running the military and economic campaign with a view towards how can he uh, be reelected in November 
uh, uh, with the only real variable in the American strategy being the American public itself, which uh, unfortunately there's no almost no discussion of what we're talking about today, except you know your show, the internet, uh, uh, yeah. Saker, and uh, the others. So yeah. uh, everything is up for grabs. And by the way, I mean, if this is Biden's thinking, he's doing so even though most Americans don't wake up caring about Ukraine. It's not their top concern, but that's a very different. There's a very different attitude inside the White House. Obviously, they do. But let me ask you about Russia. Can Russia afford to weather all of this? As we're speaking, Russia has recently cut off gas deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria. Let's say your other parts of Europe follow suit and refuse to pay in rubles uh, for gas payments, as Putin has demanded. Can Russia afford to cut off more countries? or from receiving Russian energy, or is, is, is Putin bluffing there, do you think? No, of course it can afford to cut it off because Russia is pretty much self-contained. Uh, it's, uh, if you look at how it survived the 1990s and the shock therapy, uh, any country that could survive the shock therapy, nothing is going to be uh, that uh, serious again. So it's already, it's shown that it can survive uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, and uh, it it can survive much better than Europe can survive. Michael, 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 let me push back there. It survived, but the '90s took a very heavy toll on Russia. Yes, Life yes it did. Plummeted. Absolutely. So are, are you are you suggesting that that Russia might face that again? No, I don't think it'll be that serious again uh, because now it has the support of China and other uh, India, uh, other countries. Uh, before it was completely dismantled from within. Now, it's not dismantled from within. Uh, it's rebuilt, certainly it's military. Uh, it's rebuilt uh, enough of its economy and uh, made enough links with other economies uh, who are politically supporting it. Because uh, America, Biden has said again and again, uh, we've got to destroy Russia because if we destroy Russia, we will cut it off from China and then we can go against China as our real enemy. So we've got to cut up the world that uh, is... Uh, potentially opposing us, first Russia, then uh, China, maybe India too. And uh, he's been very explicit in this, so you can imagine where this leaves China and India. India's already said, well, look, uh, we're economically linked to Russia. We're going to continue uh, uh, to link. Uh, Russia's uh, foreign reserves uh, were, were stolen in, in the West, uh, and it, it's going to basically uh, work with China to create uh, some kind of uh, just mutual uh, currency swaps, like uh, the United States uh, arranges with Europe and other countries uh, currency swaps so that they can uh, uh, hold each, each other's currency. And uh, China knows that ultimately it'll be repaid uh, uh, through a new pipeline to deliver gas uh, to China. So what uh, I think a decision has been made in Russia that it's decoupling with the West, certainly decoupling from Europe, decoupling from the United States, except for marginal uh, trade, and uh, reorienting uh, itself towards the West, because it can't afford uh, to deal with the West, the West on these terms anymore. So yes, it's going to be uh, painful, but I think the, the Russian people, uh, who get a very different uh, report of the war and the violence and terrorism that's going on than uh, the American press has, uh, the, Amer the uh, Russians seem to be 80% behind Putin, and uh, it, it's not like it was uh, in the 90s when they were uh, utterly de demoralized. And so how does this end? Uh, it's not going, uh, the military fighting is not going to end this year or next year. It's going to take at least uh, 30 years uh, to end. Uh, and it will end uh, probably with a split between uh, the West, uh, Europe and the West on the one hand and Eurasia uh, on the other hand, with uh, uh, more and more of uh, Africa and South America linking itself to the Eurasian economy as uh, Europe and the American economies shrink. Almost everyone sees shrink. Uh, sir, I think President Xi of China said the other day, he sees that uh, uh, the American economy is shrinking and certainly the European economy is shrinking for a decade if, uh, or as long as it continues the neoliberal course. And I think it, it, that's pretty obvious uh, uh, it's going to shrink. And uh, uh, 
uh, she also said, that's because a centrally planned economy, which they call socialism or Marxism with Chinese characteristics, uh, is more efficient than democracy because democracy really turns into oligarchy very quickly. Uh, and the oligarchy turns into a hereditary aristocracy, and uh, the West is not a democracy anymore. The West is an oligarchy uh, turning into a hereditary aristocracy, and uh, the uh, Chinese are trying to prevent the financial class from becoming an independent class, uh, pursuing policies that impoverish uh, uh, labor, uh, because they, uh, the, for them, banking and credit is still a public utility. That's the, was the most important sector to be socialized uh, in China. And that's what makes China so different from the United States, that uh, uh, you could say that uh, bankers are in Wall Street are the central planners of the West, uh, and their central planning is in favor of the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. And bankers are in charge of China through the, the Treasury, which is run by party officials that uh, are not seeking to make capital gains for uh, wealthy families, but are using uh, finance to build up their industry and infrastructure and make themselves uh, independent of the West so that America can never do to China what it did to Russia. And if you were to predict the first places where we're going to see a major fallout, major unrest as a result of higher commodity prices due to this war in Ukraine, where will it be? I would say Latin America uh, and, and Africa, uh, third world countries that are not, uh, have followed World Bank policy for the last uh, 70 years uh, and not uh, produced their own food, but have produced uh, export crops. So they're dependent on importing food, uh, primar primarily American grain exports uh, and, and uh, importing American energy. And uh, uh, probably the central economic aim of uh, the NATO war against Russia was to reconcentrate uh, control of the world energy trade in the hands of American, English, and uh, Dutch uh, oil companies. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, the oil companies uh, uh, and uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, are uh, going to uh, let the third world countries uh, go into a crisis. Uh, if they default on their bonds, then the United States gets to, and the bondholders uh, get to treat uh, Latin America like they treated Argentina uh, and try to, uh, or Venezuela, and uh, grab uh, whatever assets they have outside of their country, like Venezuela had uh, investments in the United States uh, and gold uh, that it left in the uh, uh, Bank of England that were grabbed. Uh, there's going to be just a huge asset grab. Uh, that is supposed to be how this unfolds. And the, the most obvious assets to be grabbed are going to be in uh, uh, Latin America and Africa, uh, maybe some uh, Asian uh, deficit countries. So uh, th th this is, this is the, the weakest link. And that's why there's this fight within the uh, IMF at the upcoming meetings to create these special drawing rights to give them money on the condition that there is a class war. So what we're saying really isn't a war between NATO and Russia. It's a class war of the neoliberals against labor across the world uh, to establish the power of finance over labor. And so do you think that there's a threat of, a, of an even worse hunger crisis in this world, one that we're not talking about and should be preparing for? A threat? That's the objective. Yes, of course. That's, the, that's what they're aiming at. Uh, uh, if you read uh, what uh, Klaus Schwab says at the World Economic Forum, he said there, there are 20% too many people in the world, especially in the global south. Uh, this is what all the big uh, foundations are for, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the billionaires. They all say, we've got to thin out the population. There are too many consumers that don't, uh, don't produce enough wealth for us. <laughs> if they produce wealth for themselves, that doesn't count because that's not for us and we don't get it. Uh, so uh, yes, that's not going to be an accident. That is obviously uh, anyone who looks at uh, the basic economic trends can see that this is inevitable. And you have to assume that this was discussed as part of the, the whole big uh, neoliberal plan of the Biden administration and the deep state behind it. 
How different is this from what we saw with Trump? How continuous or how much of an aberration do we have between the different administrations? Uh, it's pr pretty much the same. The same uh, groups are still in control. Uh, Trump uh, was going to appoint that general uh, who was going to basically clean out uh, uh, the State Department and the CIA, but uh, his uh, son-in-law convinced him not to appoint this person. Uh, uh, and uh, Trump uh, didn't have anyone in his administration able to uh, close down this whole neocon uh, group there. Uh, so basically, uh, he let them destroy. Uh, essentially, they just ignored what he did. He wanted to withdraw troops from uh, Syria, and the army just uh, refused to withdraw the troops. Nobody followed his orders. So uh, he was he was uh, an aberration politically. But uh, the presidency of the U.S. these days is pretty much uh, a figurehead for the deep state behind him. So I don't think there's that much difference. And uh, the Republicans are as much behind this plan as the Democrats. Let me ask you about the um, economic toll on Ukraine from this conflict, and, and not just from Russia's invasion, but the last eight years since the U.S.-backed coup. And maybe we can start with the what happened in the fall of 2013, because the conventional story that we get told a lot in the U.S. is that basically this whole crisis began when Ukraine uh, tried, when Ukraine was in talks with the EU under Yanukovych, the ousted uh, president. And Yanukovych was going to sign this agreement with the EU, and that's what most Ukrainians wanted. They would have brought liberty to uh, Ukraine. And then uh, Russia basically sabotaged it by uh, and told him and, and ordered him not to. And that's when Ukrainians came out to protest. This is the the, this is not you're not saying this, Aaron, right? You're saying this is the mainstream narrative that we've been fed. Yes, this is the mainstream narrative that we've been fed. And so um, that's when Ukrainians came out to protest with the, with, with the Maidan revolution, as it's called. And that's what led to the coup in February 2014 uh, that ousted Yanukovych. Can you talk about you know what that narrative gets wrong, especially the actual terms of the uh, agreements that Yanukovych was being asked to sign by the EU and what that would have meant for Ukraine? Well, uh, Russia can't, couldn't really tell Yanukovych what to do because Yanukovych was always uh, independent. Russia offered a better deal and Yanukovych said uh, the, the deal that uh, the EU was offering uh, uh, would make it much poorer than the uh, con continuation of the relationships uh, that it had with Russia, which after all were its traditional relationships. So Yanukovych didn't sign uh, the EU deal. And at that point, uh, it wasn't the Ukrainians that protested. It was a neo-Nazi group that uh, uh, was positioned in uh, that set itself up with snipers all around Maidan Square. And it was it was uh, the Nazi group that began firing on the policemen to make it appear as if it were uh, uh, the, the government and to fire on on uh, the general crowd. So basically, uh, the coup was sponsored by the United States, uh, who put in. Uh, the uh, officials that were designated uh, by Miss Newland and uh, the uh, the Ukrainians had hoped that somehow joining the EU would make them prosperous. Well, that's the myth that uh, Europe had, that if it would only take U.S. advice, it would end up as prosperous with as many consumer goods as the United States. And it was all a myth. Uh, but when, the, when Yanukovych and his uh, uh, board looked at it, they said, well, we're not going to make money this way, basically. And the kleptocrats who were running Ukraine at that time, the Ukrainians weren't running Ukraine. It was, uh, it, uh, it was considered by every, the World Bank and every agency to be the most corrupt country in Europe. Uh, and the kleptocrats thought, wait a minute, uh, if we sign that, then the Europeans are going to uh, take over our property and they're going to want to buy us out. And we're going to end up with some yachts and some real estate in England, like uh, the Russian kleptocrats. Uh, uh, but we're not, uh, it's really going to be a giveaway. So uh, they uh, were certainly behind Yanukovych and saying, uh, this is not uh, a good deal with this. That's when uh, uh, the, the US decided uh, that it needed the coup. And even at that time, it, it wanted, it realized that it, uh, it had the idea of long-term fighting against Russia as uh, the first domino 
the fall, the fight against China. That was in the discussion already at that time in 18, in 19, uh, 2014. Right. Uh, Carl Gershman is the former head of the National Endowment for Democracy. He called Ukraine, quote, the biggest prize in what he saw as a struggle against Russia. And he thought that actually bringing Ukraine into the Western orbit would actually lead to regime change even in Russia and lead to Vladimir Putin's downfall. Well, he, he, was a Trotsky, he was a Trotskyist uh, uh, well, and, yeah. and a, neo, uh, a neocon and yes. a, a, a virulent Russia hater. An example of that great Trotskyist and neocon trajectory that we see. Yeah. So much. One small point, though, I think the protest that happened initially against Yanukovych, I, I think that was actually a, a large mass of people that wasn't neo-Nazi. I, I think the neo-Nazi. Right. But, but they, they, they didn't do the coup. The they coup, weren't yes. behind the coup. The coup yeah. was definitely the the far right, as, they, as they've even taken credit for, as they've even sure. taken credit for uh, sure. openly. Um, you mentioned the kleptocrats in Russia. Let me ask you about that. What is the real state of the oligarchy in Russia? We hear in the U.S. constantly about the Russian oligarchs and, you know, they're sort of blamed for all the world's ills. What is the actual reality of Russian oligarchs? How has that evolved under Putin? This oligarch class was obviously created under Yeltsin with the advice of U.S. Um, technocrats who came in. What, what is the actual power of the oligarchs in Russia now and their relationship with Vladimir Putin? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was great, huh? Really interesting. Michael yeah. Hudson has great. a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience to share, and it was great to talk to him. Yeah, he was really, I could listen to him all day, but we had to be respectful of his time, but I could have listened and listened. So many great stories from the personal to the political. And guys, if you are not already sub, uh, Substack subscribers, you're going to want to be because we got some great behind the scenes kind of tea spillage. I think it counts as spilling the tea, right? Hearing about his working with neocons and why he thinks they're a bunch of sociopaths and psychopaths, uh, some interesting personal stories, some really great insights into the mind of the neocon. So definitely, you're definitely going to want to become uh, Substack subscribers at usefulidiots.substack.com. And Aaron, I loved the part uh, when you were recounting the official narrative of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And I think he forgot that you were recounting a narrative, not endorsing the narrative. And his eyes were like. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you know the, the truth, it's it's hard to hear. Yeah. Propaganda, especially if it's coming from someone on the left. So right. if, if you thought that's what I was doing, then that's right. Fine. That's why I had to jump in and remind him because I was okay, afraid yeah. he was going to have an aneurysm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks to Michael Hudson. It was really great to hear from him. Yeah. And make sure you go to michael-hudson.com. Thanks everybody for tuning in. See you next week. Bye everybody. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 